All right, we're off to a great start. Let's open to Jonah chapter 4. <laughs> Jonah chapter 4. I mean, there's no way I can recover from that. I can't act like I meant to say it or that it's a joke. It just shows something. We're in Jonah and we're in chapter 4. We sometimes will use a common word in ways that convey a completely different meaning than its definition. We say something is sick when we really mean it's exceptionally cool. We use the word bad to describe something we really think is very good. Words we encounter in the Bible can mean something different than we assume. Pity is a word we sometimes use differently than it's used in the Bible. We say something is a pity and we mean that it is to be regretted. The Bible uses the word of things and people that are to be regarded with mercy. God said to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? God had no regrets. He had regarded them with mercy and spared them from destruction. While God was full of pity, Jonah was just pitiful. He had just preached the greatest revival recorded in human history, but he regretted that the people of Nineveh had been regarded with mercy and spared from destruction. He hated it. He was not completely without pity, however. In verse 10, God pointed out to him that he had pity on a plant. He was not without pity, but his pity was misdirected. Instead of being directed at the persons in Nineveh who would perish for eternity, his pity was more personal. His own personal life was more his priority. And so God designed a life lesson to try to get Jonah to move from being pitiful to pitying others. And so we'll look at that in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Prior to Jonah's ministry, God had spoken through Isaiah... Hosea and Micah, saying that he would use the Assyrian Empire to discipline his people Israel for their sins. Jonah was aware of these prophecies. Jonah also read the morning newspapers. Assyria was in a state of decline and had suffered some military defeats. If Assyria continued to decline, perhaps Israel would be spared, but that wasn't going to happen. The Assyrians would be spared to discipline Israel. Jonah ministered between 793 and 753 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel began to fall, and the Assyrians uh, overran it in 745 B.C. and was finally destroyed totally by them in 722 B.C. And so you might say that it was through Jonah's ministry that Nineveh was spared. Jonah was an instrument in preserving Israel's enemies. Think in terms of today's climate of the war on terror. I don't want to suggest an illustration, but you get the idea. We would not be too excited about someone who is instrumental in preserving our enemies. In fact, we might even think them a traitor. I don't know if you remember right after 9-11, they did a big thing in Central Park, a big gathering in Central Park, and they had some celebrities come, and everybody was high patriotism. And Richard Gere came out. And, of course, he's a Buddhist and uh, has ties with the Dalai Lama. And he started asking people to regard everyone with peace and with love. And uh, I thought the crowd was going to kill him. Uh, it just wasn't the venue to be talking about that kind of thing. And so, so Jonah is sent to Israel's enemy, the enemy that is going to come and discipline Israel as uh, a tool in the hand of God. And so it's a very precarious situation. So in verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? 
Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah had warned of judgment after 40 days. The judgment never came. His reputation as a prophet was shot. Uh, I love what he says about the Lord. He, he, it solidifies our position that he ran away because he did not want these people to get saved, and he was suspicious that God uh, might save them if they repented, which, of course, he did, and they did. And so the judgment never came. He walked through three days through Nineveh, talking about, you know, he said, in 40 days, you guys are toast, your history, and it never came. And so as we look at this differently, of course, but if you're a prophet and you go to a city and say in 40 days you're going to be destroyed and then 40 days later they're not destroyed, uh, people question your, ver- uh, you know, your verisimilitude as a prophet. It's all, it's all right to be concerned about your reputation, but not at the expense of caring for others. Think of Jesus. He made himself, the Bible says, of no reputation. He became a man. And then as a man, he hung around with the wrong kind of people, people who were a lot like you and me. If you think that you're any better than the disciples, then um, you, you need to really think that through. Jonah put a priority on his perceived personal rights. He exercised his perceived right to complain in verses 3 and 4, and then he exercises a perceived right to quit in verse 5. So in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to, li- to die than to live. Uh, was Jonah suicidal? Well, actually, not really. In a moment, you'll see that he builds himself a shelter for protection from the sun. If he really wanted to die, he could have easily just walked out into the desert and died. There, there was no, uh, you know, he, he could have done that. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But you'd think that after the episode with the great fish that Jonah would understand that he did not have the right to his own life, that he belonged to his God. That being the case, he had no right to complain about God's overall plan for his life. In the Old Testament, laid into his life after God had given him the son that he had promised, God said to Abraham, I want you to get up and take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him on a mountain where I'll show you. And Abraham got immediately up and started. He didn't hesitate. He didn't dawdle. He didn't drag his feet. He didn't argue with God, which is something that he had done uh, you know, over Sodom and Gomorrah. He had learned that lesson that, that his life belonged to the Lord and that his son's life belonged to the Lord. In the New Testament, we find out that he believed that God would raise him from the dead if necessary. And so he was ready to carry out God's will. God says, this is your only son. He's the son of promise. Everything I've promised you is wrapped up in him. Now I want you to kill him. Abraham said, let's go. Let's get this thing done believing that God would have to raise him from the dead if necessary. That's how strong his faith had become. And Jonah, good prophet, strong guy, but uh, he thought that he had the right to his own life when his life belonged to God. Too much time is spent complaining. We complain about work. We complain about school. We complain about church. We complain at home. It's ugly. It doesn't help anybody. doesn't get anything resolved. Uh, things aren't all that bad usually. I, I always joke with you about complaining to the Apostle Paul. And think, of, 
Think of, so I can think of, I'll use myself, some of the petty complaints I've had over the years uh, working at, you know, a secular job. And then I could just see the Apostle Paul saying, oh, well, this boss of yours is giving you such a hard time. D- did he stone you to death? Well, no, that would be illegal. Oh, okay, so did he, did he take out a rod and beat you around the, the head and neck? No. How about did they tie you to a pole out in the garage and, and whip you? Because all of that's happened to me for the sake of Christ. And this complaining that you're doing, does it have anything even to do with being a Christian? Or is it just regular work problems? Have you forgotten that you're at work to share Christ? You know, those kinds of things. And so we need to really just have a whole different attitude about complaining and realize that our life belongs to the Lord and that we're, we're at work, when we're at work, being Christians. Verse 4, then the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry. Questions can be better than counsel. You know, we always, we want to help each other. We want to minister to each other. And we've, sometimes we settle into a, a pattern or a habit that somebody comes, it's, it's like a, you know, a psychiatrist kind of a thing. Uh, you know, we, we don't like necessarily psychiatry or secular psychology for sure, but we can fall into that mold where people come in, okay, tell me your problem, and then I will give you advice. And a lot of times, I think sometimes we need to just ask people questions. Ask biblical questions to help folks see what they are actually saying and doing. This is a great question with a fill-in-the-blank kind of thing. Is it right for you to then fill in the blank? Is it right for you to be committing adultery? Is it right for you to be looking at pornography? Is it right for you to be pursuing a divorce? Let them answer. I, I think it's rare, you know, very important for a person to fess up to what they're actually doing and, and to redefine it in, in biblical terms. People think, oh, I always use marriage as an example because we can all relate to it. But, you know, so people, they just say, oh, I'm in love, fell in love. I'm in love with this other person that's not my husband, that's not my wife. It's wonderful. How could this feel so right if it's so wrong? Uh, You know, and they have this fantasy and all. And then you say, is it right for you to be in love with someone that's not your spouse? What's the only possible answer to that? (laughs) No. And at least you can say, okay, well, then at least you know you're in sin. So we're going to agree that you're in sin. And so if you continue with this behavior, anger, adultery, whatever you plug in, then, then we know what the answer is. The answer is repentance. The answer is to agree with God and to repent. And so it's really a lot more powerful than just trying to come up with advice. Let them advise themselves. You know, it, it might not make sense to you, but it will if you think about it long enough. Each of us is our own best counselor because you know the entire situation that you're dealing with and you have the Word of God. It would take a counselor years and years and years and then they'd have to move in with you for a while. That would kill some counseling. People call and say, hey, we need marriage counseling. I say, okay, when can I move in with you? Well, what? No, we want to come into the office and talk to you for an hour. I say, no, that won't do. I'm going to have to be there during dinner and during television and figure out who really has the remote. <laughs> I, I need to see this unfold. Well, that's a little bit invasive. How else can I render a decision? Because half the time you're going to lie to me about what's really going on anyway. Or not lie, but embellish. I always know I'm in trouble when the husband or the wife says, I don't want to say anything bad about my spouse. But... 
uh, and then it flows, you know. So, so really, you are your own best counselor if you would just be honest with yourself and go to the Word. And if you do have to go to somebody, go to somebody who's going to ask you tough questions about what's really going on. Uh, so Jonah wants to quit in verse 5. He went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in shade till he might see what would become of the city. So he entered from the west, we read last time, and then he went out in the east three days later. This means he spent as little time in Nineveh as was absolutely necessary. He did the minimum of his job description as a prophet. So God makes him literally go and and give this message, and he does it, and then that's it. He doesn't want to have anything else to do with Nineveh. Now, population estimates for Nineveh come in anywhere from 120,000 to 600,000. Literally tens or hundreds of thousands were getting saved. There was no instruction, no organization, no follow-up, no counseling. There was no one to establish a home Bible study or a church. Harvest Crusade just got done in Southern California. Something like ten or 12,000, right? Is that the number of conversions that they recorded? Ten or 12,000 people got saved. You know, that's a rule here. Anytime we talk about somebody or a group of people getting saved, you have to applaud. It's a, I'll tell you the whole story one day, but, but that's very important. And you should. And so could you imagine the Harvest Crusade and then Greg Laurie just saying, okay, all you guys that are saved, goodbye, God bless you, good luck. We don't have any advice for you at all. We're not going to tell you where to go to church. And now in Nineveh, there weren't any churches. There was no place to go, nothing to do, just a bunch of people who trusted in the grace of God and thought maybe he will relent and not destroy us. And so I'm suggesting that Jonah should have moved from being a prophet to being a pastor. He should have began to teach those people about his God, who he just told us a few verses earlier is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Just that alone is a tremendous sermon. But he didn't want to have anything to do with these new converts. He felt he had the freedom to quit He exercised what he believed was his right to quit serving God. You know, when it comes to serving the Lord, you can quit any time and go camping like Jonah did. That's essentially what he did. He said, I I quit. I've done my job. I've done the minimum. Uh, You know, I've got my quarters in for spiritual security, and now uh, I'm going to go camping for the rest of my life. But we don't really have a a right to quit. Verse 6, and the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that he might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Apparently Jonah wasn't very good at building shelters. He wouldn't have done well on the show alone because he was uh, in the heat. And so the Lord gives him a a gourd, uh, this plant, to give him shade. And so um, its growth, obviously supernatural because it came up so quickly. But as the morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm And it so damaged the plant that it withered, and it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and then he wished death for himself and said, it's better for me to die than to live. The gourd and the worm and the wind are a life lesson to show Jonah that his pity is misdirected. Jonah had pity for his plant when he should have had it for persons. Uh, Verse 8, we said that he wished death for himself, and he thought it was better to die than to live. Once Jonah was out of his gourd, as it were, he wished for death. Now, I want to say this carefully. You can wish for death without being suicidal. 
and without having plans to act upon it. Life can hit you so hard that you wish you were dead. I'm not defending it. I'm only acknowledging it. And some of you, if, if we had honest testimony night, you would come up and say, you know, this happened in my life. This, I had this situation, and I, I wished I was dead. I, I didn't have any plans to kill myself. I wasn't suicidal. But I thought it'd be better off if I had never been born than have to go through this kind of pain and suffering. And that's why it's so important that sometimes we just be quiet when people are suffering and just be present, let them know that we're there for them and that we'll help them when they need help. We'll talk to them if they need to be talked to. But some pain is so intense, there's no way that you can speak to it. God has to speak to it. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's, a very, it's a very sad thing being a human being sometimes. And all of us have been there. The Apostle Paul once said that he was, quote, burdened beyond measure and despaired even of life. Commentators spend all their time arguing that he didn't really mean that, that, that it was an exaggeration. But you know what? I think he did mean it. We're not shy about telling you that bad things happen to good people and to God's people. Some of them can be lengthy. They are losses that last the rest of your life. Others can be terminal. All I can do is point you to the spiritual perspectives learned by two men who suffered in the Bible, Job and Habakkuk. Job put this into perspective for us, declaring, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When I'm not suffering, that's a tremendous hope that I can get to that point in my life where whatever happens, good, bad, I can say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Habakkuk put this into perspective when he said, after detailing all the coming losses that they were going to suffer, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. With the Lord's help, we are enabled to go from being a Jonah to being a Job or a Habakkuk. You may have seen an article circulating on Facebook that puts things into heavenly perspective. Part of it read like this. I asked God to grant me patience. God said, no, patience is a byproduct of tribulation. It isn't granted, it's learned. I asked God to give me happiness. God said, no, I give you blessings. Happiness is up to you. I asked God to spare me pain. God said, no, suffering draws you apart from worldly cares and brings you closer to me. There was more to it, but you get the idea. We need to look at things on earth from the perspective of being seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ and look, looking down upon those not under our circumstances, but over our circumstances and understanding how to put them into perspective. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That should be everybody's life verse. Whatever I do, I'm alive, I, I do for Christ. If I die, that's a gain for me. And it uh, doesn't mean there isn't going to be intense suffering along the way. There will be. Verse 9, and God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry even to death. In the Hebrew construction of the words, the sentence, God's question actually reads, is doing good displeasing to you? So God was doing good to Nineveh, and it was displeasing to Jonah. He ought to have been humbled by this question, but he wasn't. Instead, he dug in and justified his feelings. Jonah's answer, however, set him up for the lesson, and it's in verse 10. The Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons 
who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock. <clears throat> so some say that the 120,000 is a population estimate. Others say that's how many children there were. Jonah did have pity. It's just that Jonah's pity was selfish. It was other persons he should pity, persons in Nineveh who were perishing. Even if Jonah thought that the Assyrians deserved to die, what about their children? What about their animals? He had no pity for any of them. And so that's a whole other study and meditation in itself, a prophet that God was using mightily who really didn't have his compassion for people, and yet he was called to minister to people. It's, it's an interesting conundrum. Both Jonah and God were camping out in the foothills overlooking Nineveh. They both saw the same people. God had pity on them to save them. Jonah did not. And so um, you would hope that Jonah would understand this kind of pointing of the finger back at him and saying, Jonah, your pity is misdirected, and that he would repent. The book ends abruptly. What became of Jonah? Well, we don't really know, but I, I, I think we kind of do because he wrote this book. And because he did, I think we can conclude that he learned his lesson and went from being pitiful to being full of pity. And if that ever happens to us, uh, God will bring us a life lesson as well because if there's anything that we need to know and communicate about God is that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and full of compassion for the human race. Amen?